cross. I've got a stool here. This is great. I can, uh, I can sit and pre. <laughs> All right. Uh, you might have noticed my, my pew looking especially empty this morning. Uh, that's because my wife took the kids up to Massachusetts and they're uh, with her parents. My father-in-law is a pastor at a church and he's been there for 40 years as their pastor. So they're having a special thing for him uh, today in the service and afterwards. So that's where they are this morning. Uh, that's the church my wife grew up in. I'll tell you, yesterday was really special. Uh, beautiful weather, lots of people. I mean, the, the traffic was backed up on 82 for, uh, for quite a ways. Uh, I think they were running shuttle buses from the Brinkerhof School because we ran out of parking across the road at the bowling alley. It was full. Here it was full. Uh, what a great problem to have as we had a chance to really just love our community well. Uh, and I'll tell you, that ride in the helicopter, that was something. Uh, I felt like a kid. You know, I'm, I'm up there, and uh, you know when you're a kid and you're driving on the highway with, in your parents' car and you stick your arm out the window, you know? Well, I'm in this helicopter, and there's, there's no door on my left side at all. It's completely open. And I'm kind of we're cruising along, getting to the church. I'm kind of like, mm. <laughs> so I stick my arm out because I was curious. And my, my hand goes, boom, and it hit the back of the, the window. And the pilot laughed at me because uh, I was being a kid. But uh, I'm okay, though. It's, it's fine. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, there is a members meeting. just want to remind you, after church, we are going to be uh, doing two things. One very important thing is that we're going to be voting on new members. So we have four new members we'll be voting on. That's why Jim shared his testimony via video. He's actually homesick with the family, and, but we're supposed to vote on them today. So he needed to share his testimony uh, so we could vote on him. Uh, so we're going to be voting on four new members. The elders also have an update uh, on our finances and just... Uh, where we're going for the future um, that we'd love to share with you. Promise won't keep you long. I know it's that lunchtime hour and everyone's kind of getting hungry, so we will be sensitive to that and we'll get you on your way pretty quickly. But we'll have a, just a brief break after the service uh, and then we'll, we'll reconvene in here. So, all right, let's get to the word. Uh, let me ask you something. Do you ever find yourself in a spiritual rut? Your personal time in the Word might seem stale, or maybe you lack motivation to come and, and worship with the church, or you feel like you're just going through the motions. Maybe you really wish you had that joy you experienced as a new believer. Well, as followers of Christ, it's not uncommon to occasionally find yourself in such a rut the question is, how do you get out of it? How do you get out of it? Well, today, Jesus is going to perform a living parable that will teach us an important spiritual lesson about the work of God. I believe that properly understanding the work of God is sufficient for pulling us out of any rut, no matter how deep it may seem. So let's go to the Word of God now. Turn with me to John chapter 9. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find today's text on page 1064. Once you're there, I invite you to please stand with me if you're able and follow along with me as I read.
As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him to the Pharisees. Uh, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son? who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? They cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Lord Jesus, may your word this morning truly be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open our eyes this morning that we may see and behold the treasure of Christ in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. This passage is uh, particularly special to me because I can really visualize the scene. Back in 2017, I took a study tour to Israel and while there, I, I saw the site of the Pool of Siloam. Here's a, a picture for you. There we go. It's hard to see on our wonderful screen here. But um, th- that's it. If you can. <laughs> uh, so saw the Pool of Siloam. But uh, really cool was that not only did we see the Pool of Siloam, but our, our guide for that day was none other than the archaeologist who discovered the Pool of Siloam, uh, Eli Sukron. And here's a picture of me with Eli. And uh, so reading this, you know, and and many other things I saw in Israel, just, you know, when you read them in your Bible, it's kind of like reading in color now. You can kind of get a picture for the scene. But in a different way, this morning, I hope that you will see this passage with new eyes today. And this passage really gives us uh, just incredible insight into the work of Jesus that he did on earth as the light of the world. And this text is, is especially fascinating because Jesus essentially enacts a real life parable that uses physical blindness to teach us about spiritual blindness. So as we work through chapter 9, we're going to be paying special attention to the spiritual truths that uh, this miracle is pointing to. Uh, Now, we don't always want to spiritualize everything we read in the Bible, but we can when Jesus does, okay? So when Jesus does, it's okay. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to work through chapter 9, paying close attention to the physical realities, uh, or to the spiritual realities, rather, that these uh, physical realities. Uh, miracle points to. Uh, I, I want to walk you through this narrative uh, and really identify three aspects of Jesus' work as the light of the world 
that will teach us about the reality of spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. And those three things are going to be the nature of the work, the results of the work, and the purpose of the work. So that's where we're going. Okay, first off, the nature of the work. In verse 2, notice the assumption in the question that the disciples ask. They presume that the the reason this man is blind uh, and is suffering in this way is because either he or his parents sinned. Someone sinned for someone to suffer like this, they conclude. Now, to be clear, all suffering in general is due to the fact that we live in a broken and sinful world. However, we must avoid drawing direct lines from personal sin to specific suffering. And the opposite is also true. We should not presume upon the blessings of God because of perceived obedience to him. This is exactly the mistake that Job's friends made, and they were severely wrong. But now Jesus corrects this twisted belief in verse 3 by saying this man's suffering has purpose. And that purpose is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But remember, this whole event is to, is to teach us about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. We're told that this man was born blind, so we should understand that, that we too have been born spiritually blind. And when you receive spiritual sight and understanding, then that itself is a work of God and not a result of our own cleverness or intellect. You cannot see and behold the beauty of Jesus more than a blind man can behold a sunset. So when a person comes to understand their need for Jesus... They see him as beautiful. We should, we should rejoice because they did not discover this on their own. No, a genuine work of God has happened for which we should praise God. There's, there's nothing natural about conversion. Conversion is a supernatural event. Let this truth sink in for just a moment. God's purpose in your salvation is not just to reconcile you to himself, but to also display his mighty works in you to those around you. The next thing I want you to see about the work of Jesus is that he initiates it. Notice the subtle detail in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Let this truth sink in. Jesus saw this man. He took notice of him. And I like to think that Jesus didn't just casually notice this blind man, but that he really just stopped and noticed and pondered him. Enough so that his disciples notice Jesus seeing the man, which uh, prompts their comment. And it's Jesus who takes the initiative to approach him, anoint his eyes, and tell him to go wash. This man didn't ask for that. 
And it's Jesus who later, in verse 35, goes and seeks out this man to help him connect the dots and bring him all the way to saving faith. And so too, for you who believe, Jesus didn't just offer up his grace to you at a buffet and invite you to come. Jesus saw you in your spiritual blindness. Jesus came to you in your spiritual blindness because there was no way you were coming to him on your own. Now here's another thing to consider. Notice Jesus' method. He makes some mud paste from his saliva. What's this all about? It sounds kind of like a witch doctor kind of thing, right? But the best anyone can really do here is speculate as to why Jesus chose this method. And we know from the scriptures that Jesus didn't need to do any of this. So why is he doing it? He could have just said the word and this man's eyesight would be restored and healed. So why the, why the saliva? Why the mud? I happen to like Calvin's understanding of Jesus' methods here. He likens this to that episode you might be familiar with in 1 Kings 18 where the prophet Elijah has that epic showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. You probably know the story. They, they each build an altar and they offer a sacrifice on that altar and they each pray to their God to provide fire for the offering. And the God who responds with fire is the true God. And Elijah commands for 12 large jars of water to be dumped on top of his offering. And God sends fire from heaven that utterly just incinerates Elijah's sacrifice, vaporizes all of the water around the altar. And I believe that the purpose of all that water was so that there would be no mistaking the power of God. And so Calvin's theory is that perhaps these mud cakes that Jesus puts on the man's eyes are like the water that Elijah poured on the sacrifice. The mud created sort of a double blindness so that there would be no mistaking the work of God being displayed in this man. It wasn't any medicinal quality in Jesus' saliva or some minerals in the water. It was the awesome power of God on display in this man. This shows us that it doesn't matter how blind you are. You may think that you're pretty far gone or that there is no hope for you, but the power of God is sufficient to overcome the blindest of hearts. The last thing before we move on, in verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. Then Jesus makes a comment in verse 5 about him being in the world. I think that Jesus is, is teaching that the, the work of God here is, is evangelism. It's only able to be done until the Lord calls us home. The night Jesus is referring to is the time of, after his death and resurrection, after he's glorified. And likewise, we can only do the work of evangelism while we have breath in our lungs. We must do the work of him while it is still day. 
Jesus doesn't say that this is a good idea or a good suggestion. He said we must join him in this work as long as it is day for us. This is the work ethic of Christ's kingdom. Share Jesus with others until you can't. Whether you're 9 or 99, if Jesus has opened your eyes and you're still breathing, you have work to do. There are still people for you to share Jesus with. But once God calls you home, once it is night, there's no more work to be done. So see in this first point the miracle of your spiritual sight. Jesus saw you. He came to you in your spiritual blindness. His mighty power overcame your spiritual blindness, not you. And so if your eyes have been opened to the beauty of Jesus, praise God. Praise God and let that lift you out of that rut. Because a miracle has been done in you that the mighty works of God should be seen and displayed in you. Now let's look at the result of Jesus' work here. First, the people who know this man are confused. They're, they're not even sure if this is the same man. Part of the reason for this is because of all the miracles in the Old Testament, there has never been an instance of a man receiving his sight. This miracle has never been done. This is unchartered territory. And here, many find it to be simply unbelievable. No one's ever heard of this. Now let me ask you, Christian, do, you, do the people who know you, or the, that knew you before you were a Christian and had your eyes opened by Jesus, do they find it hard to recognize you? What has changed about your life that can only be explained by having your eyes open and to behold the beauty of Jesus? Or does your life not look that much different? That much different than the world around you? Or different from your life before Christ? The difference in this man was so stark that it created confusion in his neighbors. So unsure of what to do, they think, hey, let's take him to the religious authorities. I don't think there's any uh, uh, underhanded motives here. They're just trying to figure out what's going on. And so they bring him to the Pharisees, teachers of the law, the ones who claim to see, the religious elite who teach others. Surely, If anyone can make sense of what has happened, it would be them, right? Now notice how this progression from here uh, works works itself out through these two types of people. You have the blind man or the formerly blind man and you have these Pharisees. This man had his eyes open and these Pharisees have not. And I want you to see how each group responds to the same work of God in drastically different ways. One responds in only the way a person can if their eyes are open. And the other responds in only the way a person can if their eyes have not been opened. The Pharisees, blinded by their pride, encounter a work that doesn't fit in their box. Didn't fit in their religious system because Jesus did this work on a Sabbath. 
Now, this event really should have caused them to reconsider if they've really understood the Sabbath properly, but their pride would not allow for it. And so the ones who claim to see conclude that this man is a Sabbath-breaking sinner who cannot be from God. But this formerly blind beggar concludes he's a prophet. Now, he's not exactly right, but he's close, right? He's getting there. And after the, the Pharisees fail to kind of shut this down by talking to the man, they switch tactics. In verses 18 to 23, they now attempt to disprove the miracle altogether. This must be a hoax, they think. So they call in the man's parents to blow this whole scam up. But notice that while the parents don't give the answer that these Pharisees want to hear, at the same time, they're dodging the issue as much as they can. And John tells us why. It's because they're afraid. They're afraid of being put out of the synagogue and becoming social outcasts. This is a highly religious society. To be put out of the synagogue was social pariah. And so they're trying to save their own skin here by not saying too much. And, and kind of, they put it back on their son. But this man, aware of the same risks later on, he claims Jesus to be from God in verse 33, and he's, he's put out of the synagogue. And this is how it is when your eyes are opened to behold the beauty of Jesus. It doesn't matter what others think. He's so beautiful to you that put me out of any synagogue. I have Jesus. That's what happens when your eyes are open. Church, in the eyes of the world, Jesus has never been welcome. Some think that if they can just make Jesus seem cool enough, then perhaps the world would embrace him. If only we had cooler Jesus music. Or if I preached in skinny jeans. Or maybe if we could only get a celebrity endorsement. Then the world will take notice. No. No matter how you dress Jesus up, the true Jesus will always offend the sensibilities of the world because their eyes have not been opened to see the beauty of Jesus. So when they can't disprove the miracle, the Pharisees call the man back in. And now things get downright comical because there's, there's one thing you should know about, about sinful religious pride is that it, it makes you ignorant. It makes you stupid to the things of God. And these Pharisees, they can't disprove the miracle, but neither can they acknowledge Jesus is from God, because if they do, then they'd have to accept that Jesus is right about their hypocrisy, and this is not happening. So now you see the pickle they're in. They're backed into a corner, and things are going to get interesting. So now in verse 24, they're, they're pressuring this man to disparage the character of Christ and to call him a sinner. But the man doesn't take the bait. He simply points to the evidence. Hey, one thing I know. I was blind and now I see. And the Pharisees are, are, are really stuck. 
And they go back and they start asking the same questions again and again, hoping for different answers. And now notice how this simple, uneducated beggar uses basic logic to undermine the religious elite of his day. And this is something you need to know about sin, is that it just it warps your mind. And it warped the mind of these Pharisees such that they, they couldn't see things clearly. And this is how deceptive sin is. It breeds spiritual blindness. And they end up abandoning all logic by the end and resort to name-calling. And they kick him out of the synagogue. That's, that's the best they could do. Now notice again the two different paths. The religious, the religious elite who claim to see are shamed by an uneducated beggar whose eyes have been opened. Don't you just love how again and again God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise? Let me just say to you who've been following Christ for some time, maybe, maybe you're a Bible study leader, a Sunday school teacher, my encouragement to you would be to not fall into the same trap as these Pharisees. Don't presume to be a master. No matter how much you think you know, strive to have the humility of a disciple, of a learner. We Christians, we like our, our doctrinal systems. We like our boxes. And we, be, we can be quick to reject things that don't fit neatly into our boxes. But know this. We worship a big God who certainly doesn't fit in any of our man-made boxes perfectly. And this is the problem the Pharisees had. They thought they, they had the Sabbath all figured out, but when Jesus didn't fit in their Sabbath box, they rejected him. Don't make the same mistake. Strive for humility don't presume to be a master. Now let's wrap these things up considering our last point, the purpose of Christ's work. Jesus now catches up with this man after he's been cast out and he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus is not asking if he believes someone to be factual. He's asking him, do you trust the Son of Man? Do you trust him? And when the man asks for his identity, I love the obvious double meaning here in Jesus' reply. You have seen him. This man is seeing Jesus for the first time with his physically restored eyes, but he's also had the eyes of his heart opened to behold the beauty of Christ. The title, Son of Man, that Jesus uses is intentional. In John's gospel, it's his preferred term to reference the ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. It's the word become flesh that dwelt among us and in whom we have seen glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Son of Man that Jesus tells Philip in chapter 151 that he will see the angels of God ascending and descending to heaven on. 
And Jesus tells Nicodemus in chapter 3 that it is the Son of Man who must be lifted up as Moses lifted that serpent up in the wilderness that whoever believes in him should have life eternal. But in, in verse 39, Jesus says something a little confusing. He says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. This is confusing because didn't Jesus say that he came not to condemn? Remember John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But while this is true, notice the context. If we read on to verse 18, it goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So in verse 39, Jesus isn't saying that he only came for judgment. He did come to save, but those who would believe in him he would save, but those who reject him, judgment remains for for them. Judgment is another role that John associates with the Son of Man. We see this in John 5, 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And I believe there's a subtle but intentional allusion to this judgment brought on by their rejection. All the way back in verse 7, I want you to see this. Jesus tells the man to wash in the pool of Siloam. And then John adds this note that Siloam means sent. And Jesus is clearly the sent one. We see this in verse 4. But I think that Jesus is also referring to the waters of Siloam that are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 6, which says this. But this people has refused the waters of Siloa, which in Hebrew is Siloam. It's the same thing. They refused the waters of Siloa that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the sons of Remaliah. Because God's people rejected the blessings of God in these waters that were sent for them, this passage says that God will bring judgment on them. And here now we see in John chapter 9, Jesus revealing himself as the ultimate Siloam blessing sent from God. And we see a man born blind receiving this blessing while a group of religious elite who claim to see perfectly reject this blessing and their guilt remains. How is it that you may have the eyes of your heart open today? We've seen it right here in John 9. Jesus must come to you Jesus must give you sight that you may see the beauty of Christ who lived and who died and who rose again to save you from judgment and not condemn you. But if you reject him, your guilt remains. If you feel your heart warmed this morning with affection for Jesus 
in this moment. Perhaps he's opening your eyes for the first time. And I pray that is true for any here who uh, do not know him personally. The only appropriate response, if your heart is being warmed in this moment, the only appropriate response is that of the blind, the formerly blind man in verse 38. Trust Jesus and worship him. Trust Jesus and worship him. If you're already a Christian, but you feel stagnant, we started off here, you must remember the miracle that Jesus worked in you when he opened your spiritually blind eyes to the beauty of Christ. And you must be ever aware of your ongoing need for him. We never move on from grace, church. It must be the bread of life that you eat. It must be the living water that you drink. It must be the very air that you breathe. This is how you get pulled up out of that spiritual rut. Remind yourself of the miracle of God that he worked in you when he opened your blind eyes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you've opened my eyes and that you've opened the eyes of so many here. God, we pray that we would be faithful to do the work of God while it is still day, that we may uh, bring the good news of Jesus, the light of the world, to others that their eyes may be opened. Father, I pray that, there, that should there be anyone here this morning who's not come to Jesus, that you would open their eyes, that they would see that you first came to them, and that they would trust you and worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you, Pastor Mike. Let's all stand and sing that my faith.